messages in which we're going to explore exactly who we are, exactly what does it mean to be church, what did God intend for us, and how do we stack up against what was intended. And there are many, many beautiful biblical metaphors that describe the church, and we're going to explore one of those each week from now up until camp. And we'll finish at camp with the final one being the church as the family of God. Now, I'm still new enough in this role that pastors Glenn and Bruce cut me a bit of slack. So they uh, gave me first and second pick of the, uh, the metaphors in this series. And my first choice was a no-brainer. Um, I chose the church as Christ's bride because I think it is the most beautiful of many, many biblical metaphors for the church. And also because I think that understanding this metaphor is a key to understanding just how important each one of us um, individually and together as the church are to God. Probably the most difficult part of this morning was deciding upon which uh, passage of scripture to use because this image of the church as Christ's bride is so widespread throughout the entire Bible. So we're going to do a little bit of jumping around this morning. But for our reading, I've selected two very beautiful passages from the book of Revelation, which speak of that time when the waiting is over and the bridegroom has returned to collect his bride. So if you'd like to turn with me to those passages, we'll start with Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And then jumping across to Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, as is often the case with scripture, 
the key to understanding the depth of this imagery of, of Christ, uh, as, of us as Christ's bride, is to understand the context into which the scriptures were originally given. Now, these days, weddings take on all sorts of forms, depending on the traditions relevant to the cultural background of the couple being married. Now, some of these, like the Chinese tea ceremony, have very significant meaning attached to them, and others just seem to be more for fun. Now, when Bruce and I were engaged, we were engaged a couple of days after I turned 20. And we're Scottish and Irish background, respectively, and so we didn't really have any cultural traditions that we wanted to follow. But Bruce did think that it was important to follow the tradition of the groom-to-be asking the bride's father for his daughter's hand in marriage. And so we had agreed one evening that I would wait upstairs while he went downstairs and tried to sort this out with my dad. And the agreement was that I would wait until he returned and got me and brought me back downstairs. And so I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I kept waiting, and he didn't come back. And so I waited some more, and I listened in to what was happening. And uh, I heard my father yell at my mother. I heard my mother scream. Then I heard a loud thud. Lots of commotion going on downstairs. And then I waited, and I waited, and I waited. Eventually, he came back upstairs, and I said, so how did you go? And he said, well, not the best. Your mum was doing that crazy upside-down thing she does, and she wouldn't pay attention. Now, my mum, in her crazy Irish way, had a belief throughout our childhood that each person should spend some time upside down every day because it was good for your brain and increased blood flow to the brain. So every evening, my mum used to watch television upside down with her knees over the back of the couch and her head down where normal people would have their feet. And it was in this position that she was when Bruce went down to ask if we could get married. <clears throat> and you know, she's concentrating in this position and she just totally ignored him until my dad started yelling at her that she'd better listen. She listened, she screamed, she lost her balance, fell off the chair and landed on her head. <laughs> and Bruce and my father had to help pick her up. Um, things didn't really get any better from there. A couple of days later, she presented me with a, a list that she'd prepared. And this list had two columns. And the first column had things you do not have in common, reasons not to get married. And this list had about 40 or 50 items in it. And the second column had things you do have in common, reasons to get married. And it had one item in it. And it said, you go to the same church. That was the context of our marriage. And it's not the context into which these scriptures today speak. In the case of our scriptures today, the models for brides and for wedding customs at the time were the Hebrew wedding traditions of the time. And so we're going to tease out what it means to be Christ's bride 
by exploring some of those traditions into which these scriptures speak. So an ancient Hebrew marriage consists of three parts. There's the covenant, there's the betrothal, and then there's the actual wedding. And all of these are rich in meaning and steeped in tradition. And we're going to explore these one at a time. But as we do, I want you guys to be actively looking for parallels. So it's not just going to be me doing the work this morning. In fact, as I speak, I'd like you to insert the name Christ in your head whenever you hear me say groom. And whenever you hear me say bride, insert the word church or believers or even your own name. Now, I was going to have a bell and give some people bells so that they could ring it when they felt there was a parallel, but I thought we would descend into chaos. Um, So we're going to have silent bells in our head. And uh, I feel really bad this morning that I'm not going to be able to do justice to the depth of the richness that there is in this imagery. It's used in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, in the Prophets, in the Psalms, in the wisdom literature. It's used in the Gospels, in so many of the stories that Jesus told the book of Acts, and also Revelation, even in the epistles. Paul uses it a lot. And all that I will really be able to do this morning is provide you a taste from a smorgasbord. So I'd like you to join me as we begin, um, just in asking the Father to open our eyes this morning to all that it is that he intended for these passages. So let's pray. Father God, your word is rich and it is deep in meaning and it is food for our souls. And Lord, I would pray this morning that your Holy Spirit will do what I will not be able to do to provide insight um, and to um, help people to identify these parallels as we're going through. Lord God, I pray that you would, uh, your, your word would speak and it would speak with real depth and meaning this morning by your Holy Spirit. Amen. So, we'll begin with the covenant. Now, a Hebrew wedding is initiated when a man became financially sort of ready to start a family, became stable enough that he might be able to support a family. And as is the case today, this might not happen until he's in his 30s. And at this point, he, or often his parents, would begin looking for a potential bride. Or perhaps would begin formalising an arrangement that may have already been made when they were just very young children. Paramount was finding a wife who would be able to produce a lot of children into the family. Hence, the husband was often in his 30s, but the wife might be young, maybe only a teenager. So once a potential bride had been identified... The groom would leave his father's house and journey to the home of his potential bride. Hopefully, you've got a parallel there because that's a very easy one. That's a giveaway one. The rest you might have to think about. So there the parties would sit down around the table to discuss the arrangement. And so some wine would be provided for the occasion and three glasses would be poured. There would be one for the father of the bride, 
one for the mother of the bride, one for the groom, but the bride herself has an empty cup. And so the groom would come and he would begin to present his case as to why he might be a suitable prospective marriage partner for the young girl. And so he would describe his assets, he would describe his family life, he would describe how devoted he might be to the, to the future bride. And then the father of the bride would negotiate the bride price. Now the bride price would be money or gifts or things that would need to be provided um, as compensation for the loss of the daughter from the family. And then when all of these things had been completed, all eyes would turn to the bride and the empty cup which sat before her. If she didn't like what she'd heard or what she'd seen, she would simply turn the cup upside down on the table and the groom would depart, I guess with his tail between his legs. If she was interested and liked what she heard, she would pour herself a glass and she would drink from it. And that would be the green light for the groom to proceed. So he would then pull out from his bag, I suppose, uh, the ketuba, which is what you see on the screen there. And the ketuba was the marriage covenant. It was the promises that he was making to his bride. It contained all of the details of what he would agree to provide his new wife. And it would state his intent to consecrate himself to his future bride. So it was, in effect, the marriage contract or the covenant. To demonstrate acceptance of that covenant, the groom would then pour his future bride a glass of wine and he would offer it to her. And when she took it and she drank from it, that would be the symbol that the covenant had been sealed. She agreed to the terms of the covenant and they are now formally betrothed. So unlike our wedding where you're not actually married until you have the ceremony, you were married at the point that the bride drank from that glass of wine. Now, the betrothal was a binding union and it could only be ended by divorce. The betrothed parties were joined together as if they were already married. Their future marriage and the consummation of that marriage were guaranteed to happen from that point. The only way they could be ended was by divorce and divorce could only happen on proper grounds. Proper grounds might be the bride being found not to be a virgin. Hence Joseph's dilemma when he discovered that Mary was pregnant. Once the couple were formally betrothed, the groom would then depart. And he would return to his father's house, but not before he had left his future bride a gift. And it would be a gift 
of great value and a gift of great symbolism which would tell her how highly esteemed she was in his eyes and would assure her of his impending return to come and collect her. So often in Hebrew tradition, uh, the gift of choice was a gold ring without a stone in it because it was of great value, but also because it symbolised eternity that they would share together and therefore the fact that he was coming back for her. And so began a time of preparation and of waiting and of watching. And back at the father's house, the groom would begin preparing the living quarters for himself and for his new bride. And when I say preparing, I don't mean he made the beds and vacuumed the carpet. I mean he would be building. He would be building on an extra room or an extra couple of rooms for himself and his new wife. And this would continue until such times as the father of the groom deemed that the preparations were complete. And then he would send his son back. But during this time, the bride was also making preparations of her own. Typically, the time of betrothal would last a year because this was long enough to get the, the house or the rooms built, but it was also long enough to prove um, that she had kept herself pure because there would be no baby in that time. It was a time for her of purification. It was a time when she would take the ritual bath, the mikvoya, um, and during this time, whenever she left the family home, she would wear a veil to indicate that she was set apart for her future husband. During this time, she would resist all other offers as she awaited the return of her beloved who had already paid the bride price for her. And it was important for her during this time to always be ready, for the groom could appear at any moment to take her away. The bride herself would not know the date of her wedding until he returned for her. And so she must be ready at all times to leave with him. Once the father of the groom had determined that the preparations were complete and the bridal chamber was ready, he would give his approval for his son to return and claim his bride. The groom and his attendants would return like a thief in the night, often proceeding through the streets at night by a torch-lit ceremony. And the idea was to surprise her and carry her off in the dark, which to most of us doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but that's what they did. And the only warning that the bride might get would be a shout of her name or of, behold, the bridegroom cometh, um, and often accompanied by a, a, a blow of the ram's horn, the shofar. So it was important, therefore, that she watched and she waited and she was constantly ready. The groom would then take his bride back to the father's house where the hoopah had been prepared. And this was a canopy or a tent or sometimes a room and the couple would enter the hoopah and they would spend a week there in privacy. And it was there that the marriage was consummated before the couple emerged to the feasting and the celebrations which their guests would have already begun. So how did you go? How many of the parallels did you pick up on? Because the deeper you get into it, the more this imagery speaks. And today we can only really just scratch the surface of what's in this imagery of the church as Christ's bride. So let's follow it through and we'll start with the easiest one first. 
So the groom leaves his father's house to visit the home of his bride-to-be and make his proposal to her. Of course, our Lord Jesus Christ left the father for a time, coming as a baby to the home of his bride-to-be, the earth. And Jesus said of this time, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Long before our father sent his son, Israel already had a covenant with God. It was the Mosaic Covenant, and it was named after God's appointed leader of the time, Moses. And the covenant centered around God giving his laws to Moses on Mount Sinai, laws that his people subsequently broke repeatedly. So this proposal that Christ makes to his bride is the new covenant that was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now the Hebrew groom had just a short time to be presented to his bride and to make his proposal, detailing all that he would offer to her. Jesus Christ had about three years on earth. During that time he taught the people, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he performed many miracles and he gradually revealed himself to those who would listen. And it was during this time that he made his proposal many, many times over. Follow me, he says. Do you love me, he says. Who do you say I am? No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son believes in him and may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Our bride price was very high. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him will not die, but will have eternal life. The covenant made by his blood, written this time as the prophet Jeremiah said, not on stone, but inscribed on hearts. And so the Hebrew groom, having presented his case to his bride-to-be and having negotiated the bride price with her father, holds out the cup and awaits her decision. Will she drink it and be betrothed to him to the exclusion of all others forever? Or will she refuse him? Now when Jesus took the la partook of the Last Supper with his disciples, he held out the cup. And they might have expected him to pronounce the, tr the traditional blessing. Instead, he spoke what would have been very surprising words. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is being poured out for you. While surprising, these words would not have been 
completely unfamiliar to the disciples. Many of them were married men themselves and this was the proposal language of the groom. In effect, Jesus is saying, I love you and I'm offering you this cup. Will you take it and drink it and be mine forever? And he's still asking today. Every time we share, like we've shared communion together this morning, we're reminded again that we are beloved, that we have been betrothed to him, that we have been set apart for him, and that he will return for his bride. With the proposal accepted and their union now binding, the groom departs for the father's house. And Jesus Christ, of course, did likewise, as we read in the book of Acts. And you can see it up there. And so the groom leaves, but not before giving a parting gift to seal their union. Something symbolic of his love for her and of his willingness to sacrifice for her. For the ancient Hebrews, the gift was often a gold ring. But once we accept Christ's proposal, our union, of course, is sealed by his gift of the Holy Spirit. And of this, Paul says in the book to, of, to the Ephesian church, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And so the groom has departed, our groom has departed, leaving us his gift of the Holy Spirit. But where has he gone? What's he doing? When's he going to return? What should we be doing in the meantime? For the Hebrew groom, of course, there was work to be done back at his father's house adding on new rooms. And Jesus said of his own departure, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. He's promised to return and he will return and we need to be ready for his return. For the bride, of course, this was a time of watching and waiting. And since the groom could return at any time for his bride, she would sleep with a small oil lamp, that, like the one you see in the picture there, um, burning at the side of her bed, so that any moment she could spring out of bed and be ready to go with him. And of course, it's this imagery that Jesus uses when he tells the parable of the ten virgins. Five of them wise, kept their lamps filled with oil. Five of them foolish, allowed the oil to run out. And so when the cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom cometh, five of them were busy finding oil for their lamps. They were unprepared and weren't ready. While they were out buying the lamps, the bridegroom arrived, and those that were ready and had made the necessary preparations were taken to the wedding banquet. The others were not. Now, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. All brides want to be prepared and ready to present themselves as best they can for their groom on their big day. 
It's why the wedding industry is so huge and it's why within that industry, wedding dresses are a big ticket item that women will spend many thousands of dollars on to have the best of the best. Now the Bible tells of a story of a bride failing in her efforts to prepare for her groom's return. And that bride's name was Sardis. You can read her story in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. In the first part of the book of Revelation, John records letters to seven of the churches. And all of them contain some of this wedding imagery. We can't go through all of them, but I've just picked one today that particularly struck me. They are letters from a loving and devoted groom, Jesus, waiting for his soon-to-be bride, his church. And the church in Sardis was not waiting well. They weren't ready for the bridegroom to return. She wasn't living as a betrothed woman should, and as a result, her clothes were spoiled. In the Bible, clothing is often used to refer to a person's moral and spiritual character. And so here, Jesus is pointing out that Sardis was failing to keep herself pure for her future husband. Jesus said to her in Revelation, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night and you will not know at what time I will come to you. These are ominous words from Jesus. But all is not lost because Jesus continues, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will be like them, dressed in white. And I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Can you hear Jesus whispering? There's still time. Get yourself ready. Keep yourself pure. Don't allow your garments to be soiled while you wait for my return. Now, every bride wants to look her best on her wedding day, and small fortunes are spent on wedding dresses. And I remember when I was back in uni, uh, one of my friends told me a story of a wedding that she went to where uh, the people at the reception were kept waiting for three hours for the bride to get to the reception. The food was spoiled. Um, turned out what had happened was three groomsmen, three bridesmaids, um, the groomsmen were driving the bridal party to the wedding. They were coming down the Eastern Freeway in two cars. The groomsmen decided to start racing one another side by side. And then the racing turned into one trying to cut the other off and then the other trying to cut the other off. Eventually, the inevitable happened. There was an accident. The bride lost her front teeth and split her lip. Um, and they had to go and get emergency dental work done. When she did turn up at the reception, she did so with big blood stain all down the front of her dress. And when it comes to weddings, it's not just the brides. For flower girls, there is equally as much excitement and anticipation and preparation. And uh, one of our little nieces had her big shot at being flower girl when she was about three years old. Uh, and her mother made all the preparations, got the dress, did the hair, nice shoes, and there was much excitement. 
on the big day. And then gastro set in. And the dress was horribly soiled. And the parents were dabbing at it and trying to clean it. But despite their best efforts, nothing would move that stain or the smell out of the dress. But unbeknown to the child and her parents, one of the pastors of the church who was not involved in the officiating of the, of the wedding had seen the whole disaster unfold, unfolding. And he and his wife got into their car and they drove to the nearest shopping centre and they purchased the prettiest dress they could find in just the right size and they returned to the church and presented it to the family. And that for me is an image of Jesus because on our own, it's not possible for us to present ourselves in a perfect state because we are a fallen and sinful people. He provides for his bride the garments of salvation. Jesus told uh, another story about a wedding feast thrown by a king for his son. And those words should be ringing some bells by a king for his son. So this is a story to teach us about the wedding banquet of Christ and his church. As Jesus tells the story, those first invited, that is the Jews, refused to come. So the servants were sent out to bring others in and for the banqueting to begin. But when the king came to see the guests, he noticed one who was not appropriately dressed in wedding clothes. This one was immediately tied up and thrown outside. For him, it was too late. All those attending the wedding need to be appropriately dressed in the robes that Jesus provides, the robes of salvation. And as the letter to the church in Sardis reminds us, they need to have remained faithful uh, during their betrothal to avoid soiling their garments. And, and this is the, about this particular time that Paul speaks where he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And so the bridegroom comes like a thief in the night to claim his bride. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead will rise first. Then all that will remain is for the marriage to be consummated and the feasting to begin. On that day, Christ and his church will enter not into a physical union, but into a spiritual one. And of, it's of that day that Isaiah speaks. And you can, you can see the, the passage up there, Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 to 5. The bit I want you to take notice of is the little bit at the bottom. Then, from verse 5, Then the Lord will create over all Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day, and a glow of flaming fire by night over everything, the glory of the Lord will be a canopy. And there it is. The glory of the Lord will be our canopy. The Jews had their hilpah, which was their canopy or tent, where the marriage would be consummated. But when Christ returns to claim his bride, there'll be no need to erect a hilpah because the glory of the Lord will be our canopy. So I hope this morning that this beautiful imagery that we have explored has given you an insight into just how much you are loved. The groom has come, and it's you that he wants. 
He's made his proposal. He's paid the costly bride price by the shedding of his blood on the cross. By this act, a new covenant was established, allowing us to enter into that relationship with him. The cup of salvation has been offered and all who drink from it will find themselves appropriately dressed. And so the question this morning is, have you accepted the proposal? If you haven't, what are you waiting for? Don't keep the bridegroom waiting any longer. Don't risk finding yourself inappropriately dressed and thrown out of the wedding banquet when the king sends his son back for his church. If you have already accepted, then you are betrothed to him. You are set apart for him and for him alone. The groom has departed to make ready the father's house, so we need to make every effort to keep ourselves spotless and ready while he is away. For the Jewish bride, there was always the temptation to give way to doubt. Uh, doubt that the groom might not come back. A year is a long time to wait when you're waiting for your own wedding. Um, there was always the temptation that she would give herself away to another man during that time. For us, it is spiritual adultery, the giving of ourselves over to complacency or to the deception that allows us to live like maybe the groom's not coming back. There's also the temptation for us to give ourselves over to the things of the world by putting them before Christ. And it's this very real threat of becoming more devoted to the things of the world that James spoke of when he warned the church, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? The wedding feast is for all guests who have been invited by the Father who have said yes to the proposal, who are appropriately dressed and have waited and readied themselves for the return of the sun. It will be the wedding to end all weddings, the celebration to end all celebrations, and I hope that I'm going to see all of you there, spotless and radiant beneath the canopy of his glory. Amen. We're going to conclude with a beautiful song that speaks of this time when the bridegroom comes and when we, uh, we find ourselves before the throne of the Lamb.